Parker is having all sorts of issues today. Yeah, I don't understand. Yeah, this this is this is what you call a blizzard. Uh, there we go. So we're in church history, and we're talking about the the, the last. We're we're going to talk about the last little bits of the French Revolution uh, because after this point, it's not really something you would call the French Revolution anymore. It's more what we call the Napoleonic era. But oh, and my my thing keeps shifting. Um. 1799, Napoleon becomes the first consul of, of France. He's already been getting more and more important. As we talked about last week, he's becoming this war hero. He's becoming extremely influential. He's making his own policy decisions because he can. Because he keeps winning. He keeps being popular in the press, etc. For instance, he decided to conquer Italy. So there's, remember, there's no Italy yet. We talked about that last week. But there, the, that Italian peninsula... So after he conquered Italy, after he took a chunk of stuff from Venice and a chunk of stuff from Austria-Hungary, he kept Austria at bay by saying, hey, you can have Venice, which was really smart because they were the ones that were standing the most in his way. So he's like, well, tell you what, why don't we be allies? I conquered all of this, and you can have this extremely rich, actually, specifically the, this technically still a French province, but he says you can have all the cities and you can get all the money from them and things. So he's like, knock yourself out. You have tacit control of the Kingdom of Venice. He didn't ask the French directory if, if he could do that. He just said, no, this makes total sense. And it did make total sense. And the Austrians loved him for it. He took large chunks of their territory and then gave them large chunks of other people's territory. And they loved him for it. Stinking brilliant, right? If I, if I say I... Um, if you're a good politician, you can do this too. I'm going to raise your taxes. I'm going to make everybody pay $50 more in taxes. And I'm going to hand you, you personally, a check. I'm writing it out myself. 30 bucks. Right. You go. You gave me 30 bucks? You gotta believe it. I love that candidate. He gave me 30 bucks. He took 50. Yeah, he gave me 30 bucks. Cush. Napoleon. In a nutshell, Napoleon. Then he decided France really wasn't a match for Britain. He's like, we're not going to be able to fight Britain on the sea. Britain's navy is unmatched. So if we want to thwart Britain, and they just took South Africa, so we can't do that kind of stuff. If we can't fight them on the ocean, but we want to undermine them. Okay, well, why don't we undermine how they get to some of the places that they go. We could try to undermine their relationship with America, so they're quietly trying to do stuff about that. But we also want to undermine their, their relationship with India. Now, we can't stop them from sailing to India, so what we can do is maybe do something in Egypt, because they go through Egypt to, to have a trade route with India. So since they are, they're kind of got a great relationship with India, or with Egypt, let's keep them out of Egypt. But that means we need to, con we need to conquer Egypt. France just needs to go to Egypt and conquer Egypt. Because, you know, that makes total sense. Which he did! It's like, yep. So France actually owns Egypt at this time. If you're looking at the board here, it looks a little weird that France is like, oh, we're fighting over here, we got parts of Italy and Egypt. But if you didn't realize, yes, France actually owns Egypt at that point, at least for a couple of years. For about three years until they finally turned back over to England and then ultimately back over to the Ottomans. Wasn't it their fault that the Spain's lost its nose? 
Ironically, one popular myth is that it's their fault that the Sphinx lost his nose. Did you pay her for that? No, but I should. I really should. It is a popular myth, but it's totally not true. We have paintings of the Sphinxless nose before Napoleon ever rose to power. The English probably spread that one. I wouldn't be at all surprised. <laughs> he even shot the Sphinx's nose up. Oh, he did not. Sure he did. A little short guy with his hand in his vest. <laughs> Remember from last week, not a short guy, not walking around with his hand in his vest. So yes, no, they did not shoot the, the nose off the Sphinx. Never happened. What Napoleon did do, however, was bring enlightenment. In th that whole European enlightenment mindset to Egypt, and he's like, all right, when I come and I conquer Egypt, I'm not just going to bring a bunch of soldiers and things, I'm also going to bring a bunch of geologists, I'm going to bring anthropologists, archaeologists, mathematicians, I'm going to bring all these scientists with me because it's Egypt, man, we should totally study Egypt, right? It's the first time that Europe did this. So if you think about European and Western archaeologists climbing all over the Middle East, yeah, that's never happened until Napoleon. Totally Napoleonic idea. Mark, the first time Egyptologists were created, which is a whole word now. It was totally not a word back then. Napoleon. First time that a government officially sponsored the historical study of a region. So nobody had ever said, tell you what, why don't we have scientists go into that region and tell us what happened in the past? Nope, never happened like that before. That's all Napoleon. Um, in a lot of ways, and, and we'll talk about this more as the weeks go, Napoleon reminds me a lot about Cromwell. Remember when we talked about Oliver Cromwell? Where I'm like, you know, I agree with about 90% of your, of your decisions, and I disagree with about 95% of how you did them. You're like, you just rise to power because you're the smartest, most capable guy, like, on the continent at that particular moment. And you're a total twerp about it. But what the decisions that you make, are pretty much correct. You're right. This is what needs to happen. But you're going about it in I'm the guy in charge kind of ways. Napoleon, out Cromwell's Cromwell. He's like, I'm the one who's right. And you, and you are! You're being the one who's right. For instance, Napoleon's team uncovers what became known as the Rosetta Stone. The Rosetta Stone, since it was found in the town of Rashid, which the Europeans called Rosetta. And so they found that just, <laughs> just, Europeans can't say Rashid. What is this? It's too hard to say Rashid. Who can say Rashid? Rosetta. Anyway, so they call it Rosetta. The stone is significant not because of what's written on it, though, and it's kind of important at the time, but rather how it was written. Anybody? Other than the, the giddy person in the front row, anybody else know what was, don't say it, but just anybody know what's the importance of the Rosetta Stone? Okay, good. They gave the same decree from uh, Pharaoh Ptolemy V in three different languages. The same, you say, uh, so. One was in Egyptian hieroglyphs. One was in Demotic, which is derived from, uh, derived from Heretic, which is, uh, yeah, and, and it's, it's the language of, I mean, it's older, but it's the language that people would have been speaking in Egypt. And then ancient Greek. And you go, so? The reason, by the way, it's in ancient Greek is because Ptolemy was part of that line of pharaohs that Alexander the Great put into power. After Alexander the Great swept in and said, yeah, this is Greek, so this is Greek, this is Greek. As he went around, he kept leaving Greeks in charge of different stuff, including Egypt. And so there's a whole line of, in fact, it's the Ptolemaic line. 
uh, of pharaohs that are all exactly. Which is part of why people go, so was Cleopatra African? Did she look Greek? Did she look that? I don't know. But Ptolemy would have been a, an honest-to-goodness Egyptian pharaoh who would have honest-to-goodness spoken Greek, too. So he's trying to write a decree so that everybody can read it. The Greeks can read it. The, the Egyptians can read it, etc. And he puts it in official hieroglyphs. Which nobody can read anymore! Even the Egyptians can no longer read hieroglyphs by the time Napoleon's In fact, even by the 4th century, most Egyptians couldn't read hieroglyphs anymore. So by the time you get to 1800, yeah, no Egyptian knows what hieroglyphs They're all over the country. Hieroglyphs everywhere. Nobody has a clue how to read it. Do you think that would be frustrating? And what, if, what if we have all these documents about the Constitution, we have all these books and all these libraries, nobody can read any of that stuff? That's like going to... Uh, the Catholic Church, or they speak Latin. Except you can learn Latin. You can learn Latin, and you can hopefully trust that your priest is telling you what it actually is saying, and that your priest reads Latin. Not always in the Middle Ages and, and, and later on. Sometimes they're like, no, I can figure, I think I know what it means. But I hope your priest will know what the, what the priest is talking about, but you don't necessarily. What if the entire country didn't know it? You don't know anything about your history. You think you know stuff, but you don't really know. It's all written in hieroglyphs, and you can't read hieroglyphs. Thus, the finding of the Rosetta Stone is crucially important, because you go, well, I don't know what this says, because we can't read hieroglyphs. I know what this reads, because we can read Demotic. And I know what this reads, this says, because we can read Greek. Wait a minute. The Demotic and the Greek are saying the exact same thing. Holy cow! That means this is saying the same thing. This means this! So we can go back to the hieroglyphs and figure out what they meant. And if we can figure out what all of that means in hieroglyphs, then we can start figuring out what all this means. And of course, if we can figure out this, then, oh, then that must mean this. All of this opens up. In fact, the Rosetta Stone becomes the meme of the day. The people will talk about a Rosetta Stone being anything that, because you know this, now all of this is linguistically opened up for you. In fact, there's a, one of the better language learning uh, groups that are out there is, is called Rosetta Stone for this very reason. So it's kind of huge, and it opens up the Egyptians' heritage to them for, this, for the first time. Which is why, or at least part of the reason why, Egyptians didn't necessarily mind Europeans climbing all over Egypt and finding stuff and digging up their culture. When we think about this from our perspective today, or we think about 100 years later as, as, as people are digging stuff up, sometimes we go, Europeans getting in there and messing with everybody else's stuff, and how dare they dig up our dead and look. Actually, the Egyptians are like, what else can you find? I mean, at this time they have warm fuzzies. They don't necessarily like the, the French invading Egypt. But it was a relatively bloodless invasion, and they keep finding stuff and teaching the Egyptians about their own culture. So the Egyptians are actually strangely okay with this at the moment, going, fine, dig up our culture. It's only, like I said, after about a century of this, they go, you can stop now. <laughs> and look, we're going to dig up your culture, take it all back to, 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 to Europe. Oh, no, you could leave it in Egypt, that would be great. But that whole digging stuff up, we appreciated that very much. So, all this is to say that the argument could be made that Napoleon's finding of the Rosetta Stone, made possible by his conquest of Egypt, gave us access to all sorts of Egyptian historical treasures. You can actually say, thank you, Napoleon, to, to the kind of mindset that says, well, why don't we find out about this? Why don't we send an archaeologist? Why don't we do something with this? Like the 
the tune of uh, the tune of King Tut. You go, thank you, Napoleon, for helping us. He didn't find that. That's years later, but they wouldn't have found it if if Napoleon didn't start the ball rolling. We wouldn't have known that Egyptians wore hair extensions because nobody would have been digging up the mummies to find this out. Yes, Egyptian women wore hair extensions. So go figure. This is not a new thing. Weaves or nothing. Yes. But before this, were people? I think before this, people were like, grinding up mummies for medicine. Yes, but the idea of going. How about we don't grind them up for medicine? How about oh, we yeah. learn stuff about them? Yeah. yeah. Oh, they well, were digging up oh, they were digging up mummies. Uh, for that matter, uh, people were excavating the pyramids. You know how the pyramids have that kind of nice step pattern? Really, that's not the way they originally looked, right? Anybody know what the, what the pyramids originally looked like? Yeah, they were smooth sides with a gold cap until people kept trying to steal the gold cap, and so eventually the government's like, okay, we're taking that off. And people stole all the limestone to build all the houses, which is why all the houses near Giza are built out of the stuff that the pyramids are built out of. Because people wow. stole, because everybody thought, oh, if I steal half a house worth of stone, I mean, if these pyramids are huge, nobody's going to care. The guy next door goes, if I steal half a house worth of stone, nobody's going to care. You do that for a couple thousand years, and all of a sudden you go, man, those pyramids are looking rugged. <laughs> yep. Which is why the, the Parthenon in, 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 in Greece every year puts out fake Parthenon rocks, because there's big signs going, don't steal Parthenon rocks. This is, this is a cultural heritage of Greece. Please don't steal that. And so many people steal so many stones around the Parthenon going, I got a piece of the Parthenon. Every year, the Greek government chips out new pieces of the Parthenon and spreads it out all around the Parthenon. So they know people are stealing parts of So you walk and go, he, he. If everybody that had a piece of the Berlin Wall put it together, <laughs> it'd be a lot bigger than the Berlin Wall was, let me say. So, well, that's how many pinkies are running around for John, John the Baptist has, has 200 pinkies. Yeah. But also, that's why we found the, the Mernatha Stele, which is one of the earliest mentions of Israel in historical record. Mernatha was the son and successor of Ramses II who may very well have been the pharaoh that was talked about in, in Exodus. We, we talked about that not too awful long ago. On the stele, uh, which means like a nifty thingy. Anyway, um, Menatha plundered as the Canaan with every evil, carried off as Ashkelon, seized upon his gazer. Uh, Yanom is, is made what it, that which does not exist. Israel is laid waste, his seed is not. I've gone and and laid waste to Canaan in response to something. But I went and I attacked all of them. Booyah! Yeah. So we don't know exactly what it was that Ramsey's son said I needed to stick it to, to the Canaanites about. But we know that they, they've been fighting Canaan for years. We know from scripture that a lot of slaves left Egypt and a lot of Egyptians died in the process. So, interestingly, in Joshua 15.9 and 18.15, there's a well of Nephtah, which is not a Canaanite name and not a Hebrew name. And there's a lot of people who are like, hey, that seems more like, if you actually look at it, it seems more like an Egyptian name. You go, Naphtah and Nephtah, yeah, could be about him. It, it would have been on the way to Egypt, so, interesting. So, again, this is something where you go, 
up until this point, up until uh, uh, Napoleon, people weren't necessarily all that interested in doing scholarly studies of Egypt, especially not Europeans. So, yay, Napoleon! When he's in Egypt, and he hears that uh, France is struggling against a second coalition of everybody else in Europe, because nobody else in Europe likes the fact that France had a big bloody revolution, and they sure don't like the fact that, that they're suddenly actually doing better. You know, at least they're winning stuff. But the second coalition is coming up against France, and France is winning all their battles in the field because of Napoleon, but doing really poorly domestically because the directory is just doing a lousy job. If you just take a whole bunch of barbers and, and certify public accountants and say, you're now in charge of the country, it doesn't always work right. So, by the time he got back to France, because he's like, oh, I hear things are going rough, France is bankrupt, literally. I mean, they're just like, we got no money left. We're, we're done. He's like, but I keep winning! Yeah, we keep spending your money badly. Um, they're losing control of the country, riots in the streets and things. So Napoleon says, that's it. We're going to have a coup, and we're going to install a new constitution, a new government, and the position of first consul, a guy who actually is in charge because he knows what he's doing. I nominate me. By the way, we'll have a couple other consuls to give me advisory stuff, but basically it's just me. And France says, thank you. Yes, yes, we like that. Because the directory is doing lousy, and we need somebody that knows what he's doing. Napoleon has made it extremely clear he knows what he's doing. So they voted in the new constitution, 3 million to 1,500. <laughs> which is what you call a landslide. Now, technically, there are some modern historians who go, no, it was clearly rigged. And you know what? It might have been rigged. Except when you actually read the stuff that everybody's saying at the time, everybody's just like, I mean, like, everybody says the directory is horrible and they're running our country into the ground. And Napoleon is golden. Everything he touches is golden. He never loses a battle. Every decision he makes works. And he came back and said, tell you what, I'd like to run the country. Everyone, that's fine. Which is interesting, because this is uh, like the eighth year after the, after the revolution to get rid of people who thought one person should be in charge. And let's make this a radical democracy where you just call everybody citizen. Nobody else has any, any other titles. And we're all on the level playing field. And those people, after eight years of that, said, oh, we totally need somebody in charge. <laughs> Which tells you something about the concept of democracy. Not that I think we should have dictators, but that pure democracy of let's all get together and have a committee and decide, doesn't work. It really doesn't. Anyway, Napoleon is now the unquestioned dictator of the Republic of France. Yes, he has some advisors, but he's basically in charge. And most of the French people are fine with that because he's doing a good job of being in charge. And most of Europe is not fine with that because he's doing a good job of being in charge. Alright, cross the waters. Here in America, the Second Great Awakening begins. Led by a Scottish Presbyterian minister named James McGreedy, revival broke out in Logan County, Kentucky. Big revival. He had been preaching for three days in an outdoor setting uh, as the crowds overflowed the Red River Meeting House in Logan County. So they're out in the woods, and, and he's preaching for three full days in the middle of June, which is where they institute the concept of the camp meeting. If you've ever heard of a camp meeting, in fact, that's, that's kind of become its own thing. Of, we're going to have a camp meeting. 
If you've ever gone to a retreat, anybody ever go to a retreat? Go to a retreat center somewhere? Anybody ever go to some place that looks all rustic because it's trying really hard to look all rustic? Yeah. Then say, thank you, Madridi, because that's that's all starting here. This idea of let's get back to nature. Let's let's step away from what we're normally used to doing on a daily basis and really focus on God for several days. Thanks to Mr. McCready here for doing that kind of stuff. In fact, you should probably say thank you to him for our VBS because that's built off the same concept. Let's let's take several days and really throw ourselves into focusing on God in a setting removed from what we're normally used to. Yeah, all that starts here. At the end of those three days, two Methodist circus, circuit, circus, <laughs> circuit writers came and clo- that would have been a different way to end that. Um, <laughs> uh, came out and closed the meeting with a very emotional preaching and several people collapsed as a result. Now, it could have been because it's in the middle of June. It's in Kentucky. Pardon me? In Kentucky, yeah. And they've been outside in the heat and the sun for four days. Could be heat exhaustion. But church leaders declared people have been overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit and a new Pentecostal experience. It's almost like it's a new Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has overwhelmed them. Call it being slain in the Spirit, or I don't even want to a number of things. Now, some leaders said this being slain in the Spirit thing is not healthy. It's heat exhaustion. Get those people a lemonade. Um, or John Wesley said, no, this is just emotionalism. You're being overwhelmed by emotion at best. You're just getting over-emotional. At worst, this is Satan trying to distract from things. If we're preaching about the gospel and you're too busy going, look at that spectacle, it's distracting. But the people who were actually leading this are like, no, 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 it's the spirit overwhelming. So what was it really? What would you say? Yeah. It's hard to say sitting here in this classroom. It's a, it's a, it's a mixture. Could it be that it really was the Holy Spirit overwhelming people? Sure. God's a big God. Could it be that it really was just heat exhaustion? Could be. Could it be that people just got really emotional? Could be. Could it be that some people were overwhelmed by the Spirit and other people saw that and got really emotional? Could it be that some people got overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit, other people got really emotional, and then somebody else got heat exhaustion and fell over? I don't know. But the moment you say, well, here's what it really is. Well, now you're... Now you're reading into things. I'm not saying that it's always wrong to to come to a conclusion. What I'm saying is, is there are some things that are complex that shouldn't be dealt with simply. Revival became it began to sweep America in what became known as the Second Great Awakening. Remember the Great Awakening with Jonathan Edwards? On? This is the Second Great Awakening. So, all sorts of revivals. Ten meetings become very commonplace in the 19th century. Millions of people make decisions for Christ in the 19th century. Even the American culture began to change because of some of that. The New York Herald said, no, Dickens and Dumas, those are horrible. It's trash literature. Don't read it by, no respectable person should be reading it. Why? Because it's not all about Jesus. Therefore, Dickens is trashy. We tend to think of trashy novels as the thing that creepy people underline the, the, the juicy bits and stuff. You go, no, they're saying anything that doesn't honor Christ. But the, the church said this? No. No, the New York Herald said anything that doesn't specifically honor Christ is just trashy literature. Yeah. What year that was? This would be like the 18... I think 1850s. Visiting British officer Captain Frederick Marriott 
was shocked to see the legs of a piano at a girls' school demurely covered in modest little trousers because they didn't want to tempt young women with sensuality. Because a bare leg, that would be inappropriate. You know, it's a <laughs> piano leg. But the thing about this, I'm just saying, this, when we tend to think of the 19th century, sometimes we think, oh, Victorian prudishness. Well, there's a context to this. It wasn't like that in 1780. It was like that in 1820. Why? Because of the Second Great Awakening. All this massive cultural change. Even the language began to change. To avoid the possibility of temptation through the use of words, everyday speech thinks that you don't say legs, you say limbs. So if you, ironically, if you read stuff written in like the, the, the 1700s, sometimes the language is closer to what we would say than in the 1800s. Because the, in the 1800s, a lot of the writers, especially in the United States, went out of their way to avoid certain words. So, you talk about people's limbs, not about their legs, because legs are sensual and thus bad. Women don't have breasts, they have bosoms. If I say the word bosom, do you tend to think breasts? You do realize bosom just meant chest, right? You talk about Abraham's bosom in, in, in scripture. But you're trying to avoid focusing on breasts, so you refer to women's chest cavities. Same area. <laughs> Same area, but you don't emphasize the breasts. But they did that so often that now when we say bosoms, all anybody ever thinks about is breasts, which makes it really hard when I'm preaching about, like, Abraham's bosom, or was Sarah giggling in the back when I say that. <laughs> there are no cocks now. There's just roosters. You know, you go, what? What? It's like anything that might possibly be taken in inappropriate ways, you change it. You change the language. The entire culture is shifting to try to match what they see as God moving in their culture. It's kind of huge. 15-year-old Peter Cartwright made a decision to follow Christ at one of McGree's meetings. He'd been partying at a wedding, uh, drinking a little bit, dancing a lot, uh, and then on his way home, he felt near to death. He felt like he had started swooning, he had a horrible headache. I don't know what was happening. But he realized, he's like, I'm not, I'm not prepared to meet my maker. If, if I were to die right now, I don't know what would happen. And so he got scared spitless and gave his heart to the Lord and even became a minister, got ordained by Francis Asbury himself. And then served as a, as a traveling preacher and missionary to the newly opened up Illinois area of the Ohio Territory, because this is rugged frontiers western land here, right? This is the west. This is considered the west right now. Because if you remember the, the map we showed about the Louisiana Purchase and everything, this is the western side of the United States. Everything west of here is Spanish territory. So this is the west. Later, he lost a bid to the U.S. Congress to a young lawyer named Abraham Lincoln. So, it says something about what, how we're moving along in history. He always had great He did. <laughs> and then he helped to found Illinois Wesleyan in Bloomington. See, that's me throwing you a bow. <laughs> so this guy's important. Died and was buried in Sangamon County, just outside of Springfield, Illinois. So I, I list this because, yes, he's an important guy, but also because I want you to see how things are starting to move into our physical area and, and into what we're familiar with in our history here in Illinois. The revivals also fueled a, a growing temperance movement, uh, saying drinking is bad. You need to stop drinking. S since 1784, uh, with the publication of Benjamin Rush's 
Inquiry into the effects of heart and spirits upon the human body and mind, because, again, catchy titles. Growing concern about America's personal drinking habits of taking shape, saying we need to stop drinking. We really need to, to get this in. So much so that uh, even today we, we have kind of a, a weird take on drinking. We think it's fun and naughty and awesome and party and we really need to drink it. Europeans look at us and go, what? It's like, oh no, drink and be sexy, drink and party. No, drinking is evil. I go, well, but Jesus turned water into wine and everybody in Europe is fine and look, what's up with you guys? A lot of this starts here. This idea of a temperance movement where we say drinking is bad. We're tempted to say, yeah, they're a bunch of prudes. You know, they just messed things up for years and they gave us this weird take that all drinking of all alcohol is inherently bad. But you have to remember the context. In the early 1800s, alcoholism is rampant in the United States. It's as bad as the Soviet military in the 1980s. It's like, well, the average American drank half a pint of whiskey a day. That's a half pint bottle of strong whiskey every day. The average American spent a chunk of time drunk every day. Do you understand when I say rampant alcoholism? And this is uh, this on top of the rum, the beer, the hard cider, and everything else that they're drinking. This is just the whiskey. And there's a lot of other hard drink. It is a huge problem. This is why so many states began passing draw, uh, laws for being, are we going to be a wet county or are we going to be a dry county? Are we going to sell spirits or are we not? Are we going to sell it? At least on Sundays. What the, the, the compromise? They're like, yeah, we, we don't want to sell any liquor here. We really kind of want to sell it. Not on Sunday, because that's God's day. We'll get plastered the rest of the week, but we'll show God that we care about him by not getting plastered on Sunday. I appreciate that they're trying to do something, but I can't help myself but to go. What? I had this conversation with somebody about Lent this week. I'm like, they asked why I didn't do Lent, and I didn't go into the whole morning for Tammuz and the, and the temple thing, but I was just like, you know, if, if something is bad, I. I should probably stop doing it, not just for a month, but just stop doing it, period. And if it's if it's good, and I intend to go back to it, then it's not that much of a sacrifice if I just say I'm going to stop doing a good thing for a month. Just not to diss people to do it. I'm not trying to do that, but to rather say, stop and think about what you're actually trying to say with what you're doing. But they say, we, we, we think that drinking is bad. We've got to find another way to curb this. Um, not because they're puritanical, not because they're judgmental, not because they're a bunch of prudes, but because they're desperately trying to stop an epidemic of alcoholism somehow. How do we stem the tide here? By 1869, do you know who this is? Carrie Nation. By 1869, six foot tall, hatchet wielding Carrie Nation starts ripping apart, starts ripping apart uh, uh, taverns, physically destroying them. Um, she's arrested 32 times for attacking people and destroying taverns and things. Actually, she didn't start using a hatchet until, I think, around 1900, when her husband laughingly says, well, next time you try to do this, you ought to take a hatchet. She's like, that's the best thing, the best suggestion you've ever told me since we've gotten married. Okay. They divorced. Anyway, we'll talk about Carrie Nation as we're coming up later. She comes out of something called the Stone Campbell Movement kind of starts here in 1801. There's a Cane Ridge revival. Camp meetings are going on. Everybody's praying for another outpouring of the Holy Spirit because that's what everybody wants. 
if there's a wonderful Pentecost moment, everybody goes, well, I want that wonderful Pentecost moment again. How do we make that wonderful Pentecost moment happen? Which is, of course, exactly what John Wesley said could happen. And he's like, no, 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 now you're focusing on the spectacle instead of what God may or may not have been trying to figure out at that moment, trying to impress you. Now everybody just wants a spectacle. They're like, no, you're goofy. It was a wonderful spectacle. How do we get the other spectacle? How do we do that again and again and again? One of those leaders is a young man named Barton Stone, who had been very moved by... Okay, and Eric's very excited in the background. Very moved by McGree's teaching. That, that, that too, exactly. Stone brought his Cane Ridge and Concord Presbyterian congregations to Logan County for these camp meetings. But his revival came at things from a decidedly more Arminian perspective. He's an Arminian Presbyterian, which is... Yeah, exactly. Should hurt your head a little bit to try to wrap yourself around that. Hosted as many as 100,000 people at these camp meetings by the end of the year. Kind of a big deal. They also encouraged what McCready and Wesley had discouraged. They really encouraged the, quote, falling exercise, unquote, or slain in the spirit stuff. And they said, yeah, this is a clear indicator of God's power overwhelming the saved. We're, we're, we're looking for this. We're encouraging this. You should try to get yourself pulled over by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Around that same time, a Scotsman named Alexander Campbell and his father, Thomas Campbell, came over from Scotland, beginning a movement within the Scottish Presbyterians to move away from hierarchy in, in, in the church. Because hierarchy is inherently bad, right? It's inherently bad to have somebody in charge. We learn this from France. What you need to do is all be on the same level playing field. So they're disgusted with the whole idea of church bishops and doctrinal statements and all the things that men do to put strictures on other men's religion. We just need to be simply biblical. No, no, that's all we need to do. How many people think we should be not biblical, shouldn't base things on scripture? Then you all agree we just need to be simply biblical. Doctrinal statements. Ms. Christy Glenn. Well, I mean, if you're going to Absolutely. In the Bible. But only the ones in the Bible, not human structures. But, but then all we need to do is follow the Bible. Yeah, yeah. So you agree with me, not people, but the Bible. I'm, the reason I do this is I've had this conversation with so many people where I'm like, yeah, but. But if you do just read the Bible, yeah, that's all we should do. You're, you're not listening. And that still requires that somebody somewhere decides what being simply biblical means, right? I'm, I'm an Anabaptist. We started that whole idea of, well, let's just go back to the Bible. Just, if we have to check everything and go back to the Bible, let's just do that. Like, booyah. My peeps. That's us. So I respect the idea you do this in point of practice? For instance, he was raised Presbyterian, but Campbell had come to believe that the Bible clearly taught that baptisms are for believers. It's like you never see anybody but a believer being baptized. And the word itself means immersion. Therefore, baptism is by immersion for believers. That's simply being biblical. Everybody agrees with that, right? So we all agree. The Bible is very clear about that. Therefore, simply be biblical. That's what it has to be. Yeah, I know. It doesn't say how deep you go in. doesn't say how deep you go in. But Everybody now agrees, right? Because it's simply being biblical. I look at it and I go, yeah, it makes total sense. But I can't say that that is everybody's going to have the exact same take on it. 
1831, the Methodist Stone Movement and the Baptist Campbell Movement decide to join forces. They're like, we're going to kind of meld together and be the, be the same group. We're not going to have any formal structure because formal structures are bad. Doctrinal statements are bad. There is no doctrinal statements, just simply being biblical. But we're going to restore the church to being this, its original state of being a biblical church. Thus, it's oftentimes referred to as the... Restoration. The Restoration Movement, because we are restoring, we're a little before Pentecostal, that's more Azusa Street, that's more later on, but we're going to restore the church to simply being biblical, which even from the beginning, there's a problem with that. Even between Stone and Campbell, there's problems. Stone taught believers' baptism, yep, but Campbell said, right, which is a requirement for salvation, right? Well, we both agree that it's, it's believed in baptism, right? And so it's a requirement for salvation. You have to be, you have to be baptized in the church. And, and by the church, we mean the only church that's actually a church, i.e. our church. So if you are not baptized by immersion as a believer in our church, you're not really probably saved. It's like, uh, uh, well, that's your interpretation. Interpretation, nothing. I'm simply being biblical. It's not an interpretation. There is no statement of faith. Therefore, anything we say is not being interpreted. It is simply being biblical. Exactly. No creep of Christ, man. No creep of Christ. And by that, what we clearly mean, Campbell taught penal substitution. The idea that Jesus died to pay for our sins. He was a substitute for us on the cross, right? A ransom for us. He paid our, however you want to view that. Stone taught a moral influence form of atonement. No, no, no. Jesus died to infuse us with his righteousness, to radically show us his love. He didn't pay for our sins. He wasn't a substitute for us. God doesn't do that. That would be unloving for God to demand some sort of sacrifice. Are those two different forms of atonement? I would say that they're, they, they can be complementary. Could Jesus have died to pay for our sins and to infuse us with his righteousness and to radically show his love for us? I go, yeah! Yeah, all those things together. But it's amazing how many people go, no, just this part. And since I'm simply being biblical, you can't even question that without obviously speaking against scripture. He also argued, Stone also argued that Jesus was our Savior, but not entirely equal with God the Father. Well, does he clearly say in John 14, 28, the Father is greater than I? Therefore, Jesus is, yes, he is part of the Godhead, but the Trinity is not completely equal. Obviously, God the Father... And Campbell, I want to say, both these guys are, are, are fairly messed up. Together they made some things that are really cool. But both of them individually have some issues. The church eventually settles more into Campbell's camp than Stone's camp and says, yeah, we're going to buy into that, largely because, because Campbell says, I'm right and everybody else is wrong. And you can't stay in the room with that guy unless you start saying, fine. Um, yeah, well, Scotsman. Um, but they were all united in their, in their hatred of anything that smacked of human-created, creedal authority. No creed but Christ. Campbell's father taught, we speak where the Bible speaks, we're silent where the Bible is silent. Which is great, right? I try not to include much into our church service, to our worship that isn't from Scripture. Thus, for example, you can't use musical instruments in worship, right? Because the New Testament never talks about musical instruments in worship. 
and we speak where the Bible speaks and are silent where the Bible is silent. What? That's but it just it's simply being biblical here, aren't we? Some do, yeah. So you sit there and you go, yeah. So this is this is just being silent where the Bible is silent. And you go, what about all those places in the Old Testament where they use musical instruments? Yeah, that's Old Testament. Christ changed everything. Therefore, anything post Christ. What they don't talk about uh, isn't necessarily doesn't happen. It's what they say you shouldn't do, and it doesn't say you shouldn't do. That is a very good point. There became a division between the two sets of the Campbellites and the and the Stoneians. I'm going to make it important um, about that because he's like, well, wait, do we not do the stuff the Bible doesn't say anything about, or do we avoid the stuff that the Bible specifically tells us to avoid? How do we want to interpret that? As one member wrote, the present conflict between the Bible and party creeds and confessions, that side, uh, is perfectly analogous to the Revolutionary War between Britain and America. Liberty was contended for one side, for on one side, dominion and power on the other. Are you, are you the good guy American libertarians who just want to be simply biblical, or are you like England with their domination of creeds? America. So they refuse to call themselves a denomination, because denomination would be structure, and structure is bad. We have structure, and we're a group that all believe the same thing. But that doesn't make us a denomination, to which I say, yeah, it does. Hey, they still do that today. We're, we're a movement. We, that would imply having creeds, and we're simply being biblical. So the church said, we're just Christian, or we're just disciples of Christ. So the movement usually splintered off into a couple different offshoots, usually using some derivative of those names. The Church of Christ... Uh, held to increasingly rigorous doctrinal statement of standards, not, not that statement, standards, including the requirement of baptism in the Church of Christ for salvation, the refusal to use musical instruments in worship, that is a sin, the refusal to allow eating of meals in the church building. Tell, show me anywhere in scripture where it talks about the churches eating meals in their church buildings. You go, well, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't have church buildings. You go, well, even in their church worship services, they never eat meals. In fact, the only time anybody ever talks about that is how they're eating a meal instead of communion. Don't you have houses you can go eat in? Because you shouldn't be eating a meal here. Therefore, potlucks are of the devil. <laughs> yeah, maybe. So, and, wait, we did a health study of the Church of Christ and a different denomination. I am not going there. So. All right. Um... The Christian church, quote, disciples of Christ, quote, allowed things that the New Testament doesn't specifically forbid. And now we're back to what Cliff is saying. If the New Testament doesn't forbid something, then it doesn't make it inherently evil. So, sure, we can use instruments in the service in the disciples of Christ, Christian church. Church of Christ lambasted them as liberals. You horrible, horrible liberals for allowing things that uh, uh, ecumenical saying, let's forget all of our differences and all just and the disciples of Christ are like, yeah, okay. And the disciples of Christ emphasized in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. So let's just focus on unity, which is very, very sweet. But then you start having problems where you go, well, but what about things that, that might be, in fact, wrong? Well, let's not emphasize that. Let's, let's focus on what we agree on. Now there are problems in that area. So you can dip on either side of the extremes in this. Lincoln Christian College, everybody cheer, it's now called Lincoln Christian University, but this came out of that restoration movement. 
This is this is founded by churches of Christ, Christian churches. The United Church of Christ has nothing to do with this. So if you start going, yeah, we have a United Church of Christ in our town. No. Totally different group. Nothing to do with it. Two other churches united in 1957, and they called themselves United Church of Christ. They are decidedly liberal in their theology, arguing that God is still speaking. Which I would say, well, of course God is still speaking. What they mean by that is, oh, doctrine should constantly be shifting with cultural change. We should always, there's not a, there's not a period at the end of the Bible, it's just a, it's just a comma. Right? An ellipsis, as you, as, as a, but they like, they like the comma. But yeah, so, God, let God change theology, let God change, just whatever, whatever the culture wants, that's the way God is moving. Though technically, they recently entered into communion with the disciples of Christ, which just confuses everybody. Because they're like, well, Christ, the Church of Christ, the disciples, Christian Church, disciples of Christ, well, of course, they're the same denomination. No! Well, sort of now. Well, it's complicated. Wacky fun. 1801. See, church history is wacky fun. First Barbary War. Remember we talked about Tripoli and, and, and the Barbary pirates and stuff? And the fact that they probably don't appreciate being called the Barbarian Coast, but you know, it's still the Barbary Coast. Uh, the Pasha, the new Pasha coming in in Tripoli, demanded that the United States increase their annual payoffs that we mutually agreed upon five years before at the, at the Treaty of Tripoli. We all agreed how much we were going to pay them to not attack our ships, right? Eventually. Eventually. And so... That's right. Either that or something might happen. Yeah, exactly. So the protection racket always always stretches. And since the what? What? Now I'm thinking of something like that. And so they're like, there's this new president coming in, Thomas Jefferson. We got the old president, John Adams, to sign off on this. We'll just push the new president around. Because you know, he'll say, sure, you know. If we say we're going to attack your ships if you don't give us more money, sure he'll cave. He's Thomas Jefferson. Uh, that's the problem with America. America. The, the and yet, that's the, the benefit of America. Agree with that's right. Thomas Jefferson is Thomas Jefferson. He's like, heck no, I'm not doing that. They've never read the history books on Thomas Jefferson. You go, really? You think this guy's going to be a pushover? No, this guy ripped apart his own Bible. Like, yeah, I like this better. It's like, no, this guy's intense. Thomas Jefferson says, nope, not going to happen. So Tripoli began their attacks on American ships again. Like, they're taking prisoners. They're, they're selling the slaves in North Africa. They're saying, see, see, if you don't give us more money, this is what happens. Wait, 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 wait. Americans were slaves? Yeah. What? What? No, that's what the Barbary Pirates are known for. They're like, yeah, we're just... I, I don't think that we ever think of, like, yeah, we, we had a whole conversation about that last week. Especially, I know, I know. No, that's okay. But especially, like, especially um, trained sailors and white women were extremely popular in North African slave markets. But this time, the American Navy's been building up over the last five years. Adam's had to sign off on this because he's like, you know, we don't have much of a Navy. But we're going to start building a Navy. Remember, we, we created the Marine Corps specifically to deal with this sort of stuff. Stick infantry on every ship you send out. So Jefferson sent ships filled with U.S. Marines to Tripoli. It's like, really? You want to play this game? All right, we'll play this game. Ostensibly, they're there just to defend civilian ships. But these are Marines. You don't just say, and sit around being 
you know, in a defense posture. So the Marines attack uh, you know, not only the ships, but the, the, the land on Tripoli. They're like, yeah, we're going to pound you guys. To, we're, we're going to make it hurt. We're going to say, do you really want to start a fight with us? Um, some of the most daring maneuvers were led by a young officer named Stephen Decatur, who's really cool from the city of Decatur where your pastor was born, was named. This guy right. Oh, yeah, totally woo. If you ever want to read some military exploits of somebody really cool, this guy. I mean, when you have all the British writing things, you have Horatio and Lord Nelson going, this guy rocks. You're just like, this guy rocks. Anyway, uh, or, or I'll even say this. Has anybody's ever read any like the Horatio Hornblower books? Anybody ever hear of Horatio Hornblower? Yeah, Stephen Decatur. That's the kind of stuff that, that he did. It, it's, um, flying, the, flying the flag of the enemy until you ride on him, changing the flag, jumping out, setting fire to your own ship to stop the bad guys, sneaking aboard things with a, with a skeleton crew in the middle of the night. To, to, you just go, yeah, Stephen Decatur. Anyway, so it's specifically for service in Tripoli in the first Barbary War that we get that line that we talked about last week from the Marines hymn of uh, to, to the shores of Tripoli is from this. They're, some of their first involvements and the, and the Marines just kicked some serious booty in, in this war and, and it was the first time that they were extremely famous for kicking it. The Pasha sues for peace. He's like, okay, tell you what, we're going to sign a new treaty where we just don't hurt you, you don't hurt us. Uh, they will exchange your prisoners and you pay us a small fund, kind of save face, and then no more money after that. And we don't fight you anymore. That's how well we, we handled the first Barbary War. It's like, ha ha ha, America, the push over! Ah, the first Barbary War was usually when there's a first, there's a, a yeah. second coming. Yeah, there's a second coming. Anyway, um, more importantly, the United States proves to the whole world it's like, we can handle a foreign war. We can go there and not only handle ourselves, but we'll win it. If we got Moxie, but it also proves that the U.S. Marines got Moxie. You know, these are guys you don't want to mess with in battle. And also, Stephen Decatur returns home as a war hero, and we'll see him again in, in, in the War of 1812. We'll see him again in the Second Barbary War. Yeah, war hero all over the place. 1803. France regains the Louisiana Territory. Because remember... This is all Spanish territory, right? Used to be French territory, but it flipped over to Spain a while back. A while back. But it used to be French, now it's been Spanish. And I remember when I was talking about Louisiana being Spanish, I think it was Donna, I was like, but it's French. You know, no, Spanish. Belonged to Spain. But actually, France got it back in the secret third treaty of Il Defonso back in 1800. They had a secret treaty with one another where they were going to turn over the Louisiana Territory in 1803. So it's kind of like the whole Hong Kong thing where they're like, okay, in a couple of years, this will be converted over back to China. Okay, in a couple of years, this is going to go back to, to, to France. So in return for Napoleon not beating Spain to a bloody pulp, uh, Spain said, go ahead, you can have the Louisiana Territory back, just don't allow the United States in there. This, you'll be a nice buffer zone between, because we're mostly over here. The Spanish territories that are actually populated are mostly on the West Coast. Right? You can have this French buffer zone between us and those crazy Americans. Okay? And, Spain, and, Fran and Napoleon's like, you got it, baby. Absolutely. France also gave them the Kingdom of Tuscany. Saying, hey, Spain, you want a little bit of, India of Italy? Knock yourselves out. 
They do. Actually, they got really good sauces for things, too. I love Tuscan cooking. But again, this is Napoleon's big practice of, tell you what, I'm going to take large portions of your territory, but I'm going to give you portions of other people's territory. And you go, you're awesome. It's like Teflon. It's amazing. It's like, I'm going to take your stuff and then hand you something. I'm going to take your coffee because I was in the mood for coffee. But here, take Megan's purse. And you go, it's a win-win thing for me. And I'm going to coffee and Megan goes, what? Ah, bigger than you. <laughs> Napoleon, in a nutshell. Napoleon immediately turned around and sold the territory of the United States. After promising, you're right, buffer, no problem, it's ours. 250000 dollars which in today's dollars is about $209 million. Which is a large chunk. But to double your nation's size for $200 million, that's there were. Yeah, it's like there were people who are like, what are you doing? Just like people, are, you bought Alaska? You're crazy. That's fully oh wait, there's oil in Alaska. <laughs> What? You you wanted Hawaii? It's all over there. You can't even get there. Oh, take my picture by the volcano. It's like a lot of things that people did that, that some people had problems with at the time. Later on, they went, oh, you're sticking brilliant. Yes, there were people who thought, oh, you're giving away all this money to get all this wasteland to the west. Oh, wait, there's all sorts of good stuff there. Yeah. That's a really good question, because it's a really good question at the time. Um, I'll answer it this way. The next year, he assigns war heroes Captain Lewis and Lieutenant Clark to survey that whole Louisiana territory and maybe just a smidgy bit west of it. Because they didn't just stop in the blue, they went off into the white to stake our claim. Because up there, Spain says, well, it's touching Spanish territory, therefore it's ours. We have the whole west coast. Britain says, we were there first. We actually got there first. We, 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 we it's a little British flag. Yeah, it's been, Russia says, what are you nuts? We've been coming down from Alaska. We've been up there, up in Alaska this whole time. In fact, we actually lived there. We, yeah, we lived there. Every 
everybody's fighting over this whole this whole region, saying it's ours. And so Jefferson's like, could be ours. We could have the whole continent if Lord could write. Why don't you? Yeah, that's that that, coin, that hasn't been coined quite yet. But why don't you keep going westward, and then maybe go a little bit more westward? Check out where we see if it actually connects to the Pacific Ocean. But if you look at a map, it to see if it actually connects to the Pacific Ocean. But it's not us. See if it actually connects to the Pacific Ocean. Make friends with the natives there. Say, we're Americans. We're all Americans here. Who are those silly Russians? We're Americans. We like you. Yeah, let's do that. Um, it's particularly true for Russia in Alaska, right? Because they've been sitting in there for decades now. But nobody saw the Native Americans, right? I mean, it's, they're like, whoa, it's our land. Nobody else is here. We're the only ones here. Except all those Native Americans who've been here for centuries. They're not people. They're, they're not civilized. The Tlingit people of Sitka Island down here are particularly getting sick of it because they're like, well, you Russians keep taking our women, keep taking our stuff, treating us like slaves. It's our island, for crying out loud. We were here first. So 1802, they rose and attacked the Russian settlers and then built themselves a fort to prepare for war against the Russians. The Russian Navy sent cannons and things and blew up the fort. They're like, uh, we, we have a lot more firepower than you do. And the Tlingit were routed. I'm going to end with this. On the morning of the fourth day of the battle, uh, Captain uh, Visyansky uh, halted the bombardment in order to say, please don't make us pound you into the Stone Age. Just surrender. If you surrender, we won't kill you. We'll take you prisoner. But we're not going to kill you. The Tlingit uh, agreed to the surrender the following day, asked for one day to sing a lament. And, and uh, uh, Visyansky said, absolutely, I'll, I'll let you do that. Singing, beating of drums went on all day long into dark, and in the middle of the night, around midnight, uh, there's this loud wailing, and and the Russians are all like, okay, this is them officially saying, we're done. Nothing happened in the morning. Kept expecting people to come out with like white flags and stuff, and they're like, I don't like this. So the captain sends a party ashore, shocked to find that the drums and the singing had been a cover for the Tlingit to leave. They'd left people singing and beating drums all day, and all of them are now gone as they slipped into the forest in the middle of the night. How do you take the entire, yeah, yay, took the entire group and got them away without anybody hearing them because they were dead silent? How do you get, have whole families go dead silent in, in the, I can't get people to be dead silent in a service. On a, how do you, how you, how you dead silent? They've got drums over threatening them to lose their life. <laughs> There's that. But all that were left were all the corpses of all the infants and small children that they killed to cover their retreat. Piles and piles of dead children, because you can't you can't guarantee that they're not going to cry or wail. So if we're going to get away, you got to kill our birthright. You got to kill all of our, of our next generation. Darn Russians! I'm pretty sure the Russians would have never done that. They were shocked at this, and yes, that's why they wailed in the middle of the night. The Russians are like, "How could you? You are savages. You are sick." And the Tlingit are like, "See what you made us do, you vile barbarians." I'm going to go back to something I've said multiple times in this class. It is dangerous to try to look at history and oversimplify complicated interactions. Right? Who are the bad guys? The Europeans or the Indians? It's not that simple. 
yeah, both of them did things that were very good. Both of them did things that were very bad. Both of them did things that made total sense to them and their cultures. I'm not going to try to, at this stage of the game, say this group was inherently evil or this group was inherently good. What I'm saying is, is from their context, they looked at the other side and said, that is evil. Look what you've done. And both sides said, yeah, I'm totally justified in feeling that you are evil. Again, even that can be an oversimplification. I'm just saying, realize it's complicated. All right. Next week, we'll start off by talking about Aaron Burr, who's wacky fun. How would you summarize what we're talking about here in, in this chunk of history? Let's end with this. Anything, any, any commonalities that you see? Any, any patterns? Or anything that you learn that you go, boy, this helps me understand something. I want a dictatorship, I don't want a dictatorship. I want a dictatorship, I don't want a dictatorship. <laughs> that's, okay, that's an excellent way of looking at it. Do you want just to have everybody do things by committee? It never happens. Either stuff never happens, or you start getting people who are more equal than others. We're all just going to look at scripture. And by that, I mean my interpretation of scripture. But we're being very egalitarian about it, as long as you agree with me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is it good to have one person in charge? Is it good to have a committee in charge? Yeah. Is it good to have a, somebody who's competent? Yeah, but you might take charge. Is it good? Who was the good guy here? Who Was it good that we got the Louisiana Purchase? Is it bad? Is it good that we went to see the Shining Sea? Is it bad? Is it good that the, the, the Native Americans, they're the good guys, because they were, they're, no, the, the Russians are the good guys. They would have never done It's more complicated than that. And most of us tend to spend most of our time, especially when we look at history, trying to paint things in very simplified terms. But maybe the best thing is to try to go back and say, wait, let's discuss this. Let's pray about this. Let's actually do a Bible study together with as open a mind as we can. Look at Scripture and say, what's God's heart in all this kind of stuff? And work this through. And appreciate the fact that other people are coming from other angles. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you. Thank you that we're not going this alone. Thank you that we don't have to defer to an authoritarian God. Thank you that we're not lost in just just doing things so democratically that we have to have consensus all the time. And every, Lord, just thank you that you walk with us. You give us a guidebook. And you give us the intellect and you give us your Holy Spirit to discern your truth within it. Help us to be iron sharpening iron. Help us to, to draw one another closer to you and to make righteous decisions for righteous reasons. Help us to honor you in all that we do. In Jesus' name. Amen.